Today and having a putting some aside some side aside some time to talk about reliability making you some more money reliability making money number two now last month I talked about um, I talked about scenario where uh, essentially being dumb was expensive and if you recall for those of you who were there last last month uh, it doesn't matter if you weren't I'll just quickly go over. What it, is, what it is we covered last month, because we use a very interesting example. And that example was a monster of a mining truck, a truly huge mining truck, a really big one, 400 tonne payload. It's a monstrosity. Uh, and uh, often these trucks will be driven on site nonstop. It's a driver who comes in and comes out. And you can see how big they are just by, by the uh, nature of that ladder next to the radiator fins at the, at the very front of the truck. And these things can cost between five and six million dollars, depending on which model you, you want. Uh, the bigger, the more expensive, the more functional, the more expensive, obviously. And at the heart of these trucks, we have an, a very impressive thing. We have an engine, an engine which is of itself a very, very large machine. Now this engine in particular, uh, is uh, goes beyond what most of us engineers uh, are faced with on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of scale and power. So this is a 20-cylinder engine, and it's obviously not cheap. It costs between $700,000 and $800,000. And so the question we were asking ourselves last month was, how many spare engines do I need to make sure I can get through a three-year period just for one truck? And we went through a few scenarios. Um, we're not going to go through all this last, uh, all this again, because that was last one month's webinar. And it turns out that if you use sort of textbook approaches to working out how many spare engines you need, you'll almost certainly have too many things on your shelf. In the case of our, our truck, we looked at a real world example where uh, the textbook approach uh, came out as suggesting that we needed to have five spare engines to get through a three-year period. But when we were smart about it, when we actually looked at how our engines were failing, we were able to work out that we could actually not get away with three, we only needed three engines. So if we use a textbook approach, we would have had five engines on the shelf. We would have almost certainly gone through much fewer than five engines and had after three years, two, perhaps even three engines sitting on the, on the shelf uh, deteriorating. These engines are impressive bits of kit. They shouldn't be left for a long time uh, by themselves. Uh, they need to be maintained. That too is expensive. And often our mining sites are in far-flung corners of the world, which means that warehouses that need to be built in the jungle are incredibly expensive, especially if they need to be uh, temperature control as well. So a lot of companies I work with, for whatever reason, use the textbook approach to working out how many spares you need. Almost certainly are, are throwing money money away when you when they do it. So what we're going to do this week is look at our engine, but in a slightly different way. All this is all this webinar is is me taking a break because I'm going to ask you, the attendees, to do all the heavy lifting for me to uh, look at some stuff we're about to go through. And I want you to tell me what it is you see and uh, from the perspective of how we can make better decisions regarding our truck, our engine and reliable, uh, sorry, and 
and uh, product systems or service, services more broadly. So uh, for those, those of you who were at the webinar last, last month or those of you who weren't, if there are any questions about what I just talked about in terms of uh, sparing and textbook approaches to spare parts analysis, uh, feel free to ask them now. I'll, I'll happily answer some, any surface level, level questions, but if, the, uh, if, the, if there's a more, more detailed question or if the question requires a more detailed answer, I'll take that offline afterwards. But please don't feel, be shy. Feel free to ask any questions uh, as of now. Okay, not being overwhelmed with questions just yet. Last month's webinar must have been outstanding. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at our engine in greater detail. And in the scenario I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I'm painting, uh, in the scenario I'm working with right now, uh, this engine is an engine for which we have data. We have some failure data. So we know something about the reliability characteristics of our engine. This is typically how things work in the real world. We'll get something, perhaps we'll have some preliminary reliability um, uh, ideas about how our engine or our spare part is going to work, but it should always be updated uh, with what we observe in the field. Now I can see a question coming through. Did the textbook method of spare uh, calculation last month use Weibull to estimate reliability and make a prediction? And the answer, uh, Aaron, is no. The textbook approach is all about the Poisson distribution, which at the root of the Poisson distribution is an assumption of a constant hazard rate is one of Fred's favorite topics, the idea of a constant hazard rate, which means that we are assuming that our engine never wears out, it never wears in. An engine that is 1 million years old is just as likely to fail today as a brand new engine that comes off the production line. And we know that to not be the truth. And if we take the time to do, as Aaron suggests, do a Weibull analysis, look at the failure characteristics of our engine, we can make better decisions. And when we did that last, last month, I should say not last week, when we took the actual characteristics of our engine into, into consideration and not a textbook assumption, we only needed three engines. So we saved at least $2 million up front and, and then now probably had many, many other uh, nine items of savings as well through warehousing, transportation, maintenance, all that sort of stuff. So the main issue with textbooks, textbook approaches to spare parts calculation is assuming a constant hazard rate, hazard rate, which comes back to what we're going to look at today, which is focusing on how our engine or our system or our product actually behaves in the domain of reliability. Now, uh, sorry, before I move on, Aaron, did that answer your question or do I need to elaborate any further? all good then it is all good fantastic thank you Aaron all right so now we're going to look at one of my favorite little uh, animations or, or representations that is the random hand of failure now this random hand of failure, I use this a lot. And I, I like using it because it always allows me to always emphasize that failure is a random process. But because something's random doesn't mean it's not predictable. So for example, they're going to be 
bacterial imperfections. There are going to be variation in manufacturing. There's going to be um, seasonal weather changes. There's going to be uh, variation in how our people, our people or, or customers use our thing. That's possibly the biggest source of variation. But suffice to say, there's lots of things that combine to introduce uncertainties and variation in our product system or service, which means that we can't schedule in failure. Failure will never occur at a precise usage period from the time we open its, open its packet or a box. Now, in this case, we have some data points for our engine. And these are the actual data points. These are these, each one of these points represents the time to failure for a single engine. And you can see perhaps they tend to be clustered around two regions, one at the start, one at the back. But we need to provide some more context for this data because there's way, too, way more to it than this. So what we can do is plot this data on CDF axes. Now, a CDF is a cumulative distribution function. To cut a long story short, it represents the probability of failure. So as things get older, the probability of failure increases, obviously, and eventually the probability of failure will approach 100%. Our engine will almost certainly not be not working one million years from now. So the CDF value a million years from now is going to be one or 100%. Um, that is what the CDF or the cumulative distribution function represents. You've got other webinars and articles which take you through that basic uh, statistical uh, function in a, in a very easy introductory way. So if there's any further questions about what a CDF is, please scour the Ascendo website and I'm sure you'll find something that helps you along the way. Now, on this particular chart, we have 28 times to failure. What I can't represent on this chart are 50 right sensor data points. Now, what is a right sensor data point? That is a data point where we, uh, where the thing we are looking at was removed from the environment, the test environment or the operating environment before it had a chance to fail. So what does that mean in this scenario? We have uh, a total of 78 engines that make up our data set. 28 of those engines failed before we took that engine out for whatever reason. 50 of those engines were removed at various stages of, its, of their lives for, again, various reasons. Sometimes it was, sometimes those data points are simply an uh, engine that's been in a working truck at the time our analysis is conducted. So we have 50 engines that, weren't, that, didn't, that hadn't failed in a wide range of intervals. Some of these intervals are as a low as 500 hours, uh, perhaps that truck, uh, that engine had only been operating for 500 hours when we took a snapshot of this data. Sometimes we had to take engines out because a truck needed to be returned or otherwise retired. So that engine hadn't failed uh, during uh, over a certain interval and that makes it what we call right sensitive because the time to failure is to the right of that data point. So we cannot ever exclude right sensor data points because that is part of in information that we have to deal with. I can see a question come, uh, can see a question or a comment coming, I suppose. Nelson suggests that the right sensor sensor engines are censored that are still running, not failed, parked or met the achieved life. 
that's a question, you've nailed it correctly, uh, Nelson. That is what a right center data point looks like. It is, some, it is a uh, product, it's a router, it's a motor, it's an engine, it's a fan, it's whatever it is you're studying that at the time your data analysis commences, that thing has not failed, but it still has really useful information. In fact, we can, can never exclude right center data points. And I'm gonna ask, uh, before I move on and ask you guys that question, Nelson, does that answer your question? No worries, thank you. So, given that we have um, got 78 data points, 50 of them are, sen are, are censored. Why can't we just exclude the censored data points? It would make statistics a lot easier if we only had times to fire, as you're about to see. Why can't we ever exclude uh, our 50 right censored data points? Any suggestions as why well? we can't exclude them from consideration? Any ideas? The city has come up pessimistic. Uh, are you able to elaborate on what pessimistic means to you, Nelson? I can see Sean's got an idea, but I'll just let Nelson go first. I think you're on the right track. I just want to understand what pessimistic means. And Sean, you're, Sean, you're absolutely right. Right sense of data is still valuable, but there's something bigger than that. Um, that means we need to keep it. So Nelson says uh, that the values will be lower than the, what the actual reliability will be. You need data on failures and successes. What I think you're getting at Nelson is that if you exclude right sense of data, you are by definition excluding or more likely to exclude engines that have, for whatever reason on that day, longer times to failure. If you uh, exclude all right sets of data, the engines that fail early are more likely to get through into your data set. And that's what we call bias. So if we exclude any sort of sense of data, we are introducing bias into our data analysis. If we exclude right sense of data, we do what I think Nelson is suggesting is that we drive the apparent times to failure down. The, uh, the engines that have failed early are almost guaranteed to get into our data set where those engines that are going to last for a long time, uh, if, if our test finishes after six weeks and we exclude rights in the data, they'll never make or influence our data analysis. So we need to always include our uh, sense of data because if we don't, it introduces bias. Um, I can see that uh, if several items are still operating at high operating times, as, Sh as Sean suggests, the characteristic life will be higher, which I think is rephrasing what I'm saying, um, that if you exclude right sense of data points, uh, you will essentially bias your data set towards uh, engines which have failed early, which will mean that uh, the apparent characteristic life or mean time to fail will be much lower than it actually is. And by including our right sense of data, we make sure that our characteristic life is higher where it deserves to be. So we can never do data analysis without excluding any right sense of data points or any sense of data points. 
but there, I'm highlighting just how much or how many sensor data points we have here. You can see that our highest, uh, our, our, our last data point occurs at about 80% CDF. And that's, we're gonna talk about where we get these points very shortly. Are there any questions about what sensor data is before I move on? There's no questions and we're going to move on. Those are some really good feedback too. Uh, Nelson and Sean, fantastic. All right, so what I'm doing now is I have just taken that data and I have squished the axes, so to speak. What, I, what, what does that mean? I've created a Weibull plot. So if we look at that animation again, see what I've just done. If we plot our data on a normal uh, or a uniform or an, an absolute CDF, um, you can see when we uh, skew these axes, so we have a logarithmic scale on the horizontal axis and we have this weird CDF scale on the vertical axis, it can we can do that in a way where it creates a Weibull plot. Now. I have done webinars on what a Weibull plot is as well. So if this is something that's new to you, I highly recommend that you go to my uh, Weibull plotting webinars to look at what a Weibull plot is because they are so useful. And that, uh, we're going to use and leverage some of that information what we're about to go through right now. You should be able to keep up if you've never heard of a Weibull plot before, but I cannot suggest strongly enough if you've never done Weibull plotting or if it's something you're not completely familiar with or some of the things we do today Make you make you think, huh? I never knew you could do that from a Weibull plot. Then please go and look at our Weibull plotting webinars and some of our some of our articles to learn about how a Weibull plot can be really leveraged to help you uh, uh, make some really really uh, cost saving decisions. So the question I'm going to ask you guys right now is: Should I schedule my engine to be swapped out? So let's go back to our data. Now, you can, for those of you who are familiar with the Weibull plot, you can see on the top left-hand corner of our Weibull plot, we have a sort of weird angle scale. We have a bunch of numbers at the top where you can see uh, there's sort of different slopes. Uh, and those slot different slopes point to a uh, different value at the top. Again, you'll need to be across what a Weibull plot is to fully understand that. But suffice to say, this uh, these... Um, these slopes give us an indication of a what we call a shape parameter, the beta parameter of our Weibull plot. And the beta parameter is a number on the top of our scale. So uh, if you can have a look at the, the, the data on the screen, you hopefully be able to see the numbers at the top. Um, if you could uh, imagine the line of best fit and or imagine the sort of typical slope of the data points, the curve, the CDF curve in a Weibull plot, what could someone throw, throw my way a, their best guess at what number uh, aligns with the slope that seems to be uh, the best fit for our data points? So for example, if you think, I was thinking one that's not, uh, that's not right. So you can see that at the top, we have a six, a number of uh, number six. If you think that that slope, that line, that shaded area, which points up to six, that slope, that angle, if you think that characterizes our line of best fit, then uh, then the answer is six. Now I can see a couple of answers coming my way. Evan suggests it's 0 0.8. Eric suggests it's 0 0.7. We've got Stribbertson suggests it's about three. And uh, I can, 
you know, no, none of you guys are really wrong at this stage because it's just a, it's, it's your subjective assessment. And you can see that our line here has got some bends and curves and stuff like that. Someone thinks it's between three and six. Um, looks like two populations. Interesting. Paul, I like your, like your response. We're going to come back to that one in a tick. But if we were forced to, uh, forced to draw a line, straight line through here, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you out of your misery and suspense for a little bit because uh, it turns out that the typical slope for our engine based on the data we have is around about one. So what does a, a beta parameter of one mean for those of you who have uh, done Weibull plotting before or listened into our Weibull plotting webinars? What does a slope of about one mean notwithstanding there's a bit of some funky curves going on with our data points constant failure rate says sean uh random fail means mark says mark i think you're talking about uh randomly occurring with respect to uh, usage as in it's it's not going to be more likely to occur early less likely to occur late occur late just be aware even wear out failure is still random but i think i take your point but uh We've got a bunch of people who say exponential failure rate. I can see what it, see you, we have a very learned audience today. Now, if we have a constant hazard rate, and let's just assume that for the sake of this question, it is a constant hazard rate. Remember, the question I ask you guys is, should we schedule our engine to be removed, uh, replaced at some sort of fixed interval of time if we have a shape parameter or a beta parameter of one, which implies a constant hazard rate? No, great answers. Based on the premise that our thing has a constant hazard rate, which means it never wears out, it never wears in. A, uh, an engine that is 1 million years old is just as likely to fail today as one that is brand new. From a statistical perspective, if that's truly what's going on, uh, then we should never, ever uh, replace our engine. And we know, that's, we know that's nonsense. But the reality is, if you were to plug these data points into software, that, uh, that does some stuff, it would suggest that the, ha the, uh, the hazard rate is constant because the single line of best fit that Weibull software tends to do has a shape parameter of about one. So straight away, uh, if we were to do a traditional approach to Weibull analysis here, we might be incorrectly suggesting that we should never swap our engine out. So the next question I'm going to ask you guys, and I like Paul's response or Paul's question, that it looks like there might be more than one population. So next question, what might be driving failure? All right. So if you look at this, this line, these data points here, Paul suggests there might be two populations. Paul, would you like to, uh, 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 would you like to elaborate on what you mean by there being more than one population. And I'm acknowledging Mark's responses as well. Yes, you raise a good point. You only replace if you have high beta, which implies wear out. Placements are a big mistake if you have wear in, essentially you're resetting the wear in period again. And perhaps you can see four populations. So Paul, are you able, uh, you might be furiously typing away. Uh, let's see. Oh, skip, let me. So Paul, you said because you see a knee in the curve, what does, okay, so 
next step for people who don't know what two populations are what does what do you mean by two populations and i agree i can see some weird s shapes going on but what the, what is at the heart of this s shape in terms of two populations perhaps up to four <clears throat> there are multiple failure modes or lots I prefer to say multiple failure mechanisms because failure modes are the, you know, uh, the manner in which something fails. Is it leaking heavily or is it leaking slowly? And, and failure mechanisms are things that we can model because it deals with the physics of the problem. But I completely agree. There are two, well, appear to be at least two different types of failure processes going on. And when you have two different types, um, that means that uh that means you see uh, especially in wobble plots different slopes wobble plots are really good at modeling single failure mechanisms really really good they're very useful which is why wobble plots are used so much in reliability engineering but if you have a complex system and i hopefully you will hopefully you all agree that an engine this big is a is a complex system uh you are going to have different ways your thing can uh can fail and i can see but Shrivetson is voting for three populations. All right, so let's just let's just scratch that uh, itch for a little bit. Let's have a look at our uh, our data in greater detail. What I have done, this is real data by the way, is I have looked at the three most troublesome components, and these are now represented on our CDF plot here, a Weibull CDF plot with different markers, different colors, different shapes. We have red triangles. We have a yellow or orange cross. We have a green square. But we're going to look at our red triangles first. Now, what do you notice about where our red triangles uh, sit on our CDF plot? Are they occurring early? Are they occurring late? They're scavenge, uh, scavenge pump values, to be, uh, to be uh, specific. What do we notice about they're occurring late? Good work, Shrivetson. They are the phase that occur at the back end of the apparent service life of our engines. And Michael points out these have a higher slope. And in fact, if we isolate our, um, if we isolate these in greater detail and actually create a Weibull plot of nothing but our scavenge pump failures, we get this. Now, hopefully you all agree that that creates a relatively straight line in our Weibull plot, which has a pretty high slope. And what does high slope mean? Wear out, constant hazard rate or, or wear in? Which one of those things does a high slope mean? Wear out failures. Fantastic. We see a, uh, a really steep slope. In this case, it looks you know, maybe higher than six. If it's greater than one, we know we have wear out. And so these seem, these could be the things that are driving the wear out of our engines. Now, I have spoken uh, last year about data analysis and I'm an advocate, <laughs> sorry, I advocate against blind use of off the shelf software packages and you're about to see why. I um, go and create, I went and did a, a uh, let's say an accurate reliability uh, analysis. I use a really cool um, Monte Carlo simulation approach where we actually sample from the true likelihood function and don't make those tons of assumptions um, that, uh, uh, that most off the shelf software packages make. And when I did that, I got this region here, a 95% confidence interval. This confidence interval tells me that based on the data for our scavenge pump, I'm 95% certain the true CDF curve goes through this region here. And you'll see that there, 
that doesn't really line up with our data points. Why is, might that be the case? Does anyone have any idea why the data points as plotted on this Weibull plot don't really line up with the um, essentially true analysis of, the, of all the data points we have in giving us our confidence interval? Mark has got it right. Many suspensions in the data, many censored points. What that means in practice is when we have uh, interval data, when we have censored points, it makes it infuriatingly difficult to try and estimate the CDF of a particular failure point. So remember, we have 78 data points. Here we have one, two, three, four, five, six uh, uh, times to failure for our uh, scavenge pump, which means that we have 71 right sensor data points for our scavenge pump. And that makes it very difficult to estimate the CDF value of each time to failure for our data point uh, when we have that many, that much sense of data. So if you were to do a simple Weibull plot, you will see that um, you'll see that our data points don't line up with the true representation of our understanding of where the uh, where the CDF curve should be. And this is going to become more prevalent later on. So just as a quick sort of summary of all that gump, commercial Weibull plotting software sucks. It makes tons of assumptions and you can make some really bad calls potentially if you, uh, if you uh, forget that these assumptions exist and you have lots of suspensions. Suspensions really make it challenging to plot data points on anything. It's a lot easier when you just have uh, times to fire nothing else. But when you have that many uh, uh, suspensions or sensor data points, it becomes a problem. Okay, so the line of best fit from the, the, uh, the algorithm which I use to create this 95% uh, uh, confidence interval looks like this. And again, it's removed from our data points. And when I move this over to our scale over here, when it gets there, it suggests that we have a beta parameter of about 8.96. So it's much higher than one. Now, given that you know this, what would you recommend for our engine, given that you know that we have uh, essentially these tail end failures, these, these late occurring failures, mostly caused by the scavenge pump, and it has a uh, where our scavenge pump seems to be wearing out uh, at a very particular point in time. That's what a high beta parameter means. It means that when it does wear out, it wears out, um, wears out quickly, which essentially means it's the, the degradation mechanisms are highly correlated to usage as we've measured it. So what can we do? What can we make as a suggestion to our team about to make things better? Eric suggests scheduled overhaul or replacement based on run hours at that point in time, which is fantastic. Uh, it might, we need to explore that further to make sure that's the right call. But how do we just stop our system level analysis where our software told us the shape parameter was one, uh, we would never have got to this potentially um, cost-saving recommendation of Eric that we actually schedule our overhauls based on this failure mechanism, mechanism here in our scavenge pump, um, which, uh, which is then going to then drive where we should either service our engines, engines or replace our engines. And ideally, we don't want to replace an, an entire engine. We might be able to say, hey, if we can just replace a scavenge pump, we don't need to take the engine out. All of a sudden, we have, we have saved uh, huge costs in taking an entire engine out and replacing it with a brand new one just by 
servicing or replacing our scavenge pump at, uh, at a set, set inter interval. Um, another thing that we can do, don't just uh, jump, jump to all our optimal replacement times. Maybe we need to get a better scavenge pump. Maybe we need to get a more robust one or design a more robust one, because if we can do that, then we can just address a tiny, teeny little bit of our engine uh, to make to uh, essentially make our engine act as if it doesn't have this wear out characteristic. So Shriverton asks, how will you determine the overhaul interval based in this beta? Can you elaborate a bit on that? If I have time at the end of this webinar, I will. I also will point out that I have a, another webinar on optimizing servicing intervals, which is addresses this precisely. Um, if I, again, Shriverton, if I have time, I'll have a conversation with you. If not, more than happy to schedule a conversation after the webinar. But uh, as a third option, I do have a webinar where we address that uh, servicing interval optimization bit. Um, cool. So what we've done now, just by scratching the surface a little bit, is because uh, we were able to see from the start that we had at least two populations. As reliability engineers, we go, hang on, let's look at what's going on here. When we do that, we might have come up with a really cool recommendation which targets a scavenge pump and nothing else, but essentially uh, revolutionizes our maintenance regime. Okay, so that's our, um, that's for our scavenge pump, which uh, as, as you might recall, uh, seems to account for the few failures that occur at the end. And you can see that the uptick of, uptick of the slope is correlates with our scavenge pump failure data. Now here is some bottom end failure data as well. Now check this out. I've done some, I did that, use that really funky algorithm I talked about last year in my webinars. And here is our 95% confidence interval. And remember, because of all those suspensions, um, it makes it really difficult for us to plot the or estimate the CDFs of our times to fail, which as you can see here, it appears as if our data is creating a line which is completely unrelated to our 95% our confidence interval here. You can see we have, let's just say, maybe 11 or 12 data points, 78 data points in total. So we have about 65 or 66 suspensions, which makes it really, really challenging. And so you really need to be on top of your game if you're gonna use suspended data and be very, very careful with off-the-shelf uh, wobble plotting software. So here is our line of best fit. Um, and you can tell based on, based on uh, our, when we move it across to this slope up here, we have a beta parameter about 1.11. So, in reliability engineering uh, parlance, that is pretty close to one. So just to uh, go over again, what we, can, what we talked about earlier, when, we, uh, when I asked you, what does a beta parameter of one mean? Uh, what does this suggest? What does a beta parameter of a close to one suggest for our bottom end failure points? What does it suggest? You can see our data points re-embedded back in you know, overall thing, exponential distribution, a constant hazard rate. Days independent of run hours, fantastic, Eric, exactly. It is ageless, it never gets old, it never gets young. One that is a million years old is just as likely to fail today as one that is brand new. Now, of course, that's not always the case. Things will almost certainly deteriorate over time. But uh, what that means here is that uh, constant hazard rates typically mean that our thing is experiencing external catastrophic stresses. Why? Because think about a tornado. 
It doesn't matter how old or young your house is. If you get hit by an F5 tornado, it's going down. So the failure rate of houses due to F5 tornadoes uh, should be uh, independent of how old that house is. So if you're in near Oklahoma or other parts in uh, tornado, uh, tornado Alley, it doesn't matter how old or young your house is, the failure rate or hazard rate with respect to tornadoes is uh, relatively constant because an old house is just as likely to be destroyed as a young house. Ain't nothing gonna be standing after an F5 tornado goes through. And it turns out that after this analysis was done, they did a root cause analysis on the failures for our bottom end. I'm trying to get there and identified that what was happening were these, these large contaminants in the lubrication. Contaminants would hit uh, the metallic surface and essentially initiate a rapid a deterioration of our of our machine to the extent that uh, that each uh, each uh, external uh, stress from our contaminant was almost catastrophic. It would hit it, cause damage, and very quickly that thing would deteriorate. So that we can see here that our data analysis aligns precisely with what, with what we expect, and that that team was then able to go and make some changes in terms of the lubrication the. Uh, the filtration, everything else like that to remove what was another big part of the failure story for our engine. And we knew straight away from our rival analysis that, that it looks like uh, there is a constant hazard rate. So that is the second of our three populations of failure. Next one is the valve train. Now the valve train has, a, uh, here we have six data points. Um, and it's starting to occur a lot earlier. I should go back one slide just so you can see where these orange crosses exist in the overall data set, if my computer lets me. So you can see here that we have a couple of valve train failures relatively early. Uh, yes, there are a couple of late ones as well, but it's certainly not the uh, scavenge pump which seem to be uh, having failures at the tail end and nowhere else. So if we do the Weibull plot for our valve train and valve train only, Check this out in terms of discrepancy between the true confidence interval and the plotted data points again, because of all those right censored, right censored bits. Now, if you had those data points on a piece of paper and you were trying to manually fit the line of best fit, you would have all sorts of trouble doing it. In fact, you know why the computer does as well, because this dotted line here represents the 50th percentile of our confidence interval. It sort of represents the point where we are 50% confident that the CDF is going to be higher or lower. So we often use the median or 50th percentile to characterize, uh, characterize our CDF curve when we're doing wobble plotting. The maximum likelihood estimate, estimate uh, produces a, a slope like this, a, a line like this. And you can see that these lines have quite different interpretations when it comes to slope. And the reason why there's this big discrepancy is because of that censored data. Now I'm talking about censored data as if it's a bad thing, it's not. It is something we need to include. We can't exclude censored data because it introduces biases, but we need to have censored data. So we need to have censored data, we can't exclude it. But by the same token, that really makes some of our computers struggle to, uh, to uh, accurately match up what's going on with what it looks like on our computer screen. So this, uh, so this confidence interval here is again, based on the algorithm. So uh, this confidence interval is spot on. This is the true confidence interval. If you have 
has anyone experienced doing uh, uh, probability plots on any commercial Weibull plotting software where you have, in this case, six data points and 72 suspensions or sensor data points? Does anyone have any experience where they've tried to do Weibull plotting with so few times to failure and lots of suspensions? There might be one or two of you out there interested to see if there, there have been. Yep, the confidence interval is extremely broad. Now, the reality is um, when you do it correctly using this, this algorithm, the confidence bounds come in a lot tighter. If you do this on, uh, let's just say Wobble Plus Plus or something similar, the confidence bounds blow out because off the shelf software involves two and sometimes up to four uh, algorithmic assumptions. And when that happens, uh, essentially those assumptions don't do well when we have censored data. And so you will have weird confidence bounds, weird confidence intervals when you have data like this. If you're serious about trying to save millions of dollars from day one, you really need to uh, get on top of modeling uh, uh, reliability data accurately and creating confidence intervals, which are based on the actual data and not four or five levels of assumptions. It's all bad when you have uh, just a few number of data point, few data points, and off the off the shelf uh, uh, software do, uh, looking at uh, looking at the uh, likelihood functions and MLE and everything else. So some good feedback there. I, I haven't done this. I, I don't I don't use off the shelf software because I have my own thing. But every every now and then when I do get access to it, I use data like this just to show people how how different the uh, off-the-shelf software outputs are when compared to the true software outputs. And the true software outputs, outputs are often a lot tighter, a lot less uncertainty, and often uh, help you make better decisions just by, uh, just by using the correct approach. Okay. So depending on which line of best fit you want to use, again, an issue with it comes to, uh, comes to off-the-shelf software, let's just in this case, use uh, the maximum likelihood estimator. And we move it across. Uh, we have a shape parameter of about 0.73. Now remember, the 50th percentile line, the median line had a, had a much uh, shallower slope. So it would have a beta parameter of perhaps about 0.5. So either way, we have a shape parameter or beta parameter, which is less than one. What does that suggest for our valve train? What does that mean? We have a beta uh, parameter, which is less than one for our valve train. Wear in, thank you, Sean. What causes wear in or what causes infant mortality? Thank you, Shrivetson. What are some of the root causes of wear in or infant mortality? Generally speaking, I should say. Installation manufacturing, excellent, where well, we have Defects in a small number of the population because we have improper manufacturing approaches. Uh, even having a 10% defective uh, fleet of products is still a huge number, but essentially once those 10% fail, the apparent reliability of the remaining population increases because by definition, it is less likely for those remaining things to have the same defect. Some really good answers here. So in this case, when we fast forward, an RCA was done on our valve train. And it was, these failures were typically all caused by installation issues, alignment issues. And so 
as a reliability engineer, how useful are you to your organization? If you can just use this data and predict what the root cause analysis is going to, uh, going to find um, in a very useful way, how useful are you or how valuable are you to your organization? If you're able to look at this data, take the three most dominant value mechanisms, do what we've just talked about here and say, hey, you know what? Our uh, scavenge pump, it's wearing out. We've got a few options here. We can modify our maintenance regimes. We can, we can perhaps even do root cause analysis on that scavenge pump, but it seems to be failing at a pretty, pretty uh, consistent point. There's a very, uh, very sharp or very, uh, very high slope. It's, when it does wear out, it seems to wear out very consistently. So it's, it is very uh, uniquely tied to how we measure, measure usage, which potentially means that we don't have a pump which is robust enough. Or if that's the pump we have to use, then we can have a maintenance regime where we swap that scavenge pump and that scavenge pump only at a fixed interval and our engines keep going. Think of our um, bottom end failures. If we see that we have a typically constant hazard rate, we know it's an environmental thing. So what's gonna cause uh, damage to our bottom ends uh, and, and every other similar piece of metal around it? Well, it, lubrication is, a, is, is the likely culprit or things in the lubrication. And so when you see constant hazard, hazard rates uh, associated with things that essentially live and die by lubrication, it typically means that the contaminants in that lubricant are so big that when, it, when they do damage, our thing, it, invo it invokes pretty rapid deterioration. Other contaminants, they more slowly wear things down over time. Um, so, and which in a way it's good that you see a constant hazard rate because it typically means you have really big or really bad contaminants and they're the easiest ones to, uh, to resolve through having better filtration systems. And when it comes to our valve here, how useful will you be as a reliability engineer by being able to say from the data analysis and nothing else, hey, we likely have an installation problem or a manufacturing problem. You can save months of root cause analysis by helping them, helping the team focus on what they should be looking at. We know our uh, valve train is not wearing out, so we don't need to do any accelerated live testing. We need to look straight at manufacturing defects, installation assembly, all those sorts of things. And so let's put our valve train data back into our overall data set. Okay, so before I move on to the most important message of this lesson, are there any questions or are there any comments? Or does any one of you guys have any similar experience you'd like to share with our fellow attendees? Any questions or any um, any war stories? None. Cool. All right. So we've done a lot of math stuff, statistical stuff, but none of that is the most important message of this lesson or this webinar, I should say. Oh, right, lesson there, sorry. It should be webinar, it's not a lesson. The most important message of this webinar and not lesson is something perhaps even simpler, but more profound than the deduction, deductions we've just made. So 
we got a couple of those stories coming through right now. I needed to allow more time for people to type. So Aaron suggests that the issues he's faced is that failure data is not easy to separate by failure mechanism. It is bunched together. So uh, if it's bunched together, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, Aaron, that you are not able to look at, you don't have the data accompanying each data point, which allows you to work out whether it was a bottom end or valve train or scavenge pump. Is that correct? Right, so the, the, the story from uh, the, uh, the thing we should learn from Aaron's story is that when we uh, do testing or gather field data, we need to gather the data, not just the data points. We need to understand what caused that particular thing to fail, or even if it was uh, due to a particular component. Sometimes I've had to do very forensic data analysis where I only had data points and I had to look through um, resupplied data to work out which component was ordered uh, at a point in time close enough to that observed failure point to assume that component was the thing that failed. It's painful, but if you can do that, then you can look at, um, then you can look at what is causing these different slopes and different knees and different bends and different S-curves in our wobble plot. If you don't have that, then you sometimes are in a bit of trouble, which Aaron correctly points out uh, was the case for him. Fantastic. Now I see a question from Nelson. Uh, do I have a recommendation on database approaches to separate the different failure mechanisms? Let's say you have incomplete history or parts not available and cannot say the failure was due to the failure mechanism. Good, really good question. And again, so beyond the, let's just say second order forensic stuff where I look at the resupply data and try and guess which component was, was ordered um, uh, in response to this time to failure over here. If you go through that, that's the, that's, that is a pain, but it's also the best way of doing it for that particular scenario. And if not, the best thing you can do is then essentially uh, group the data points. Now, what I do when, I, when I'm able to do this is I actually create, if I see, okay, there tends to be, it looks like there's three or four subpopulations here. Let's just say, I'll usually start with two. I run that algorithm I was talking about uh, and it then finds the two most likely combined viable distributions where one describes population one and one describes population two. Now, the good thing about that is it's up to the computer to work out which, which thing lies, which data point lies in which region or which uh, under, under each, each different module, mod, model, I should say. I don't need to draw a line between the two. The actual uh, algorithm will work it out for me gets more and more challenging when you have think you have three or four subpopulations and uh, often that means you're overfitting lines the computer is going to uh, essentially uh, fit lines to just natural variations in your data points but where there's a couple and very distinct lines and if you have a lot of data points Mike uh, I always use the algorithm it is it is really good at uh, being objectively able to find Wible curves, which are marry up with different regions. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, if you if you don't have that skill set, or if you don't have the ability to do it for whatever reason, then you have to do it by best guess. Now, in this case, uh, if we might not have been able to work at the, that the scavenge pump was was uh, the thing that was going to fail at the end, but our curve, if we go back here, uh, if we're trying to work at where we should schedule our servicing. Well, even though the line of best fit in, uh, overall is uh, 
has a shape parameter of about one, you can clearly see the tail end of our curve is kicking up. So you can manually draw a line through the tail end of our curve and it would have a pretty, in this case, a pretty accurate uh, shape parameter. And you can then base your decision on when you should schedule servicing or schedule replacement based on that part of the Weibull curve, or sorry, the CDF curve. Uh, because that's the thing that's going to drive your decision-making. Everything else, which appears to have a constant hazard rate, that is nothing that you're going to address during a, during a servicing or schedule. You don't fix constant hazard rate failures by replacing anything. It's the bit at the end. So even in this case, if you had nothing else, draw that line for those data points at the end and use that to work out where you should uh, think about scheduling your service, servicing. You can see straight away that at about 10,000 hours, if you were to swap your engine out there, you're going to avoid all those wear out failure mechanisms. So perhaps as a very rudimentary best guess, that's going to be the recommendation you make to your team. Now I've seen lots of reliability analyses that don't even go to that level. They say, well, the shape parameter on average is one, so let's do nothing. And all of a sudden we have these catastrophic wear out failures because we didn't look at the talent of our curve. Um, so there's tons of different ways of answering that question. Now, hopefully I've given you a couple of ideas, Nelson. Do, you, do I need to elaborate any further detail or, or have I hit the nail on the head or as close as possible to hitting the nail on the head as possible? Okay, thank you, Nelson. I see Shrivitson suggests that only non-quality failures can be plotted on the Weibull. If there are a lot of quality failures, then 50% is, is, uh, is there any way in which we can extract useful insight from these quality failures? Now, the first thing I don't like doing is pre-ordaining something as a quality failure, which typically means infant mortality or wearing because quality often refers to those manufacturing defects or installation errors. Um, and that's and essentially everything else is non-quality. Now I'll disagree with that, Sriverson, in that only non-quality failures can be plotted on the Weibull distribution, Weibull plot. Sincerely disagree with that. In fact, infant mortality, which is the hallmark of quality failures, will stick out very, very clearly. In fact, our Weibull plot for our, I think it was our, uh, our bottom end, that was an example of quality failures or the hallmark, I should say, of quality failures being uh, uh, visible on the Weibull plot, which is why Weibull plots are uniquely useful. Um, so I don't know if I agree with your premise. Uh, so is there any way that you can extract useful insight from the, these quality phase? Well, absolutely, we've just done it today. Again, I use, uh, I look at my, uh, if you look at my servicing interval webinar, I essentially do that by uh, creating an algorithm which separates the infant mortality constant hazard rate and wear out regions of our post-servicing hazard rate. And by doing that, we're able to make um, good decisions about where we should service. Um, we're running out of time, Shrivitson, so I'm more than happy to expand on this answer in a separate conversation if that one has not answered the question adequately. All right, so let's go back to my most important message for today once I once I do this. All right, the most important message of today, of this webinar, not lesson, is that even though we have a very, very complex uh, machine, I hopefully you agree, and my computer allows it to come up, this thing is a beast, it's a behemoth, it's a very big engine, it has 20 cylinders, cost for 2,700 and 800,000 US dollars. 
it has as as you can see by this by this, uh, this this picture here, this this illustration here, there has to be thousands of ways this thing can fail. However, when we looked at the data, 82% of failures were down to three components. 82%, 23 out of 28 failures were caused by three components. So the most important message for today is the vital few. Everything you need to do as a reliability engineer has to focus on the vital few. We are often in awe of the complexity of things like this machine, this engine, which means that we want to pour through data. We need to go and we need to uh, do complex data analyses, all those sorts of things. But perhaps just speaking to the maintenance guys and saying, hey, what components do you swap out more than anything else? Now, we don't need to do wobble plotting for those guys to say valve, valve train, bottom end, and scavenge pump. That accounts for 82% of all failures. So if you spoke to enough guys, you quickly walk away from that 10 minutes uh, sur impromptu survey, knowing as a reliability engineer, it's the valve train, it is the bottom end, and the scavenge pump that you need to look at. And when we look at that, look at what that means statistically, those three things account for 82% of, uh, of all the failures we've, we've, we have observed. So it's the vital few. The vital few is the most important message of today's conversation because you can make astronomical improvements in reliability by always remembering that it's the vital few. It's one or two things, in this case, three things, which dominate the failure for this very complex bit of kit. Now, it's not always just three things, but the principle remains the same. The weak points are the weak points. They're the things that are driving the reliability characteristics. So always, always, always focus on the vital few. Now, given that, I have a few more minutes left. Are there any questions about the vital few or anything else that I've covered today? Off-the-shelf software sucks. Has severe limitations. Any questions? Have I ever seen a mechanical failure caused by software? Uh, as in these engines have electronic brains. Absolutely, where especially where you have, for example, excessive braking, um, where, the, uh, where you have uh, just recently worked with a military vehicle where it's had a problem with its ABS. Um, and that meant that uh, braking was occurring and not occurring when it should have. And this manifested itself in terms of um, uh, faster than, than anticipated when on brake assemblies and, and cylinders and everything else. And we couldn't work out what it was until the, we worked out the root cause was essentially the ABS computer, uh, which means that, uh, which means that uh, we have an apparent mechanical failure but caused by software. So the answer to your question, Nelson, is absolutely, and it's becoming more and more prevalent um, as things become more automated. Uh, Aaron asked, uh, you briefly mentioned about using commercial software. What common pitfalls should we be aware of using uh, commercial software to do wire So the first common pitfall is that the confidence, confidence intervals and the lines of best fit 
often not, the line's the best fit. Uh, you will often get confident, in particular confidence bounds when you have either a few uh, data points or lots of censored data points, even if you have lots of times to failure. The confidence intervals are always, always blown out. And you often see, even, even on some of the propaganda slash marketing pieces, uh, marketing brochures for these bits of kit, you will see confidence bounds which sort of double back on themselves, which is statistically and physically impossible because they have somewhere between two and four assumptions to quickly give you those confidence intervals. So if you have a few data points, and yes, six is a few data points, or if you have uh, lots of data points, and but lots of those data points are sensor data points, you'll have confidence interval, intervals which are massively blown out. And that means you might not you, you might not think you've reached a milestone when you in fact have. If you were to do the same analysis using the proper algorithm, turns out you've got much greater confidence on time to failure than you thought. And perhaps that could move you through to the next step of seeing lots of time, lots of uh, reliability data incorrectly interpreted as being as uh, we have not arrived at our goal yet. And so let's go back and do some, some more stuff. It's, uh, it's wrong, it's, it's painful. And don't forget, we're trying to make things more and more reliable these days, which, which means that uh, you get fewer and fewer failures under test. So we have to deal with uh, fewer data points. In a way, that's good. It means we have fewer failures. Um, but when we do that, often the confidence intervals go, th uh, go through the roof and through the, uh, through the floor and we make poor decisions. Uh, that's probably the biggest one. The other one is that when we have sensitive data points for our, uh, for our uh, wide distribution in particular, you can get big discrepancies between the apparent slope of that line of best fit and the actual slope. So if I go back to, um, go back to our, I think our, 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 uh, our valve train, when my computer lets me. All right, very slowly scrolling up, very, very slowly. So let's go to let's go to this one here. So you can see that uh, the data points as plotted because those data points, the CDF are best guesses with all that sensitive data point. If you were to draw your line of best fit, you might actually conclude that the shape parameter is greater than one because the slope of those data points is lots is lot uh, a lot higher. But when we do the correct analysis, you can see that the the slope of the true CDF is more likely to be much, much lower. And depending on whether you use MLE or the 50th percentile, you will get uh, different interpretations of the, of the slope. So if you have lots of, lots of sensor data, you might get software which suggests incorrectly that your slope is higher or lower than it actually is, which could then lead to an entirely incorrect RCA where you're investigating wear out, where it's actually where it should be wear in, or you might think we're okay when we're not. So there are a couple of really big pitfalls when it comes to software. Perhaps the biggest one is that software often makes people stop thinking. We just put numbers into software, get an answer, and we don't think about what we uh, we don't think about the process itself. That's probably the biggest pitfall is that people just use software as an opinion generator. And when you get the opinion back in the form of uh, numbers, finish your report, off you go, what's the next thing we need to do? And that's probably perhaps even the biggest pitfall of software, that behavioral issue. Okay, so I've seen Michael said a couple of things. Remember that if we don't change our direction, we're liable to end up where we're headed. 
which is a very, very good point. Nothing changes, nothing changes. So if you keep using, uh, if you keep using outdated or, or inaccurate approaches, or even, even if you just simply, well, if you think about what we did today, if you didn't scratch the surface, if you just stopped at the uh, assuming that our engine had a constant hazard rate, think of all the costs we would have incurred by not getting to the, to the root cause of our valve train bottom ends and perhaps even perhaps most importantly our scavenge pump failures because that scavenge pump failure was the dominant wear out failure mechanism. Okay, Nelson, Warren Weibel. Um, or alternatives, how do you handle only sensor data with one, with a few, one or two or, or no, no failure data? Now, if you have sensor data with no failure data at all, you have a problem because that means the maximum likelihood estimate for only sensor data, only right sensor data will be an infinite reliability or an MTBF, which is infinite. So if you only have right sensor data, the only way you can estimate reliability is if you use Bayesian analysis and a prior distribution, which is a subjective assessment or, or, or subject, subjective probability on the likely reliability characteristics of your thing. Yes, then right sensor data can then update a pre-existing uh, prior distribution. But if you are going to use classical statistics and use nothing but right sensor data, it will automatically and always say that its best guess in the reliability of your thing is uh, one forever or an MTBF of infinity. So that's the first thing. With the second, th the second thing is, is that there are very few people out there who actually do the proper uh, algorithm or involve the proper algorithm uh, to, uh, uh, to get the, the proper analysis for a few, a small number of data points and um, with lots of sensor data. Um, so I, I looked at reliability data analysis. I did four webinars last year. So the algorithm I described there, that's the sort of thing you need to do uh, because uh, the assumptions that that, that, uh, that software makes, off the shelf software makes uh, to get there is, uh, is horrific in those scenarios where you only have a small number of data points and or lots of sensor data points. So you need to find that statistical guy or girl or reliability engineer uh, someone like me who is able to do that for you if you're not going to create your own algorithms. So that's the short answer. There's, there's no commercial software out there yet, that, out there yet which tackles this. Um, and uh, if, you, if you need to investigate that further, go back to our data analysis webinars last, last year. And that, will, uh, that describes what you need to do to, uh, to get the proper and correct answer. Hey, I know we've five, five minutes past the midday. I'm more than happy to uh, keep talking as long as Fred tolerates this and you guys want to talk. Um, for those of you who need to drop off, I can see a couple have already dropped off. Thank you very much for your time today. It's always great speaking to you guys. Uh, one thing I'll always ask is that uh, you give us feedback and comments about what we did well in this webinar today, what we didn't do well. Um, if, it's, if it's a good comment, Put it on our comment box. If you've got any suggestions, feel free to reach out. Um, <laughs> feel like to reach out to me or Fred directly. Shrivitson, um, I see that you you just said that's an awesome push to build your own algorithm. Yes, there is. A, it is it is something that you could uniquely benefit from. Now, to be clear, uh, there are certain there are scenarios where reliability so 
off-the-shelf software is more than fine for what you need to do. I want to be clear about that. But the reality is it's not general. It won't be useful for every scenario. So if you're trying to deal with really reliable stuff, um, um, then, then, you need to, uh, you, then you need to perhaps really investigate doing it yourself or finding someone who can, who can do this for you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think it's Mumtaz there. Uh, Nelson, thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, Rahul, how can I get to your earlier webinar? If you go to ascendoreliability.com, uh, you can go to our webinar page. I'm sure, uh, uh, Fred, Fred, if there's any additional guidance you want to type in, please feel free. But now webinar series, I think is if you, as long as you become a, a member of Ascendo, you get access to every single one of those historical webinars. And that should be, as far as I'm aware, still available as of today. Um, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So if you uh, have a look at the ascendoreliability.com website, if there's any other, if there's any problem, if you have any problems finding those webinars after that search, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm sure Fred would be happy to help you out as well, but I can certainly guide you to where you need to be. There we go. So if you'll see in the comments box, Fred has given you the link. And he's highlighting the fact these are free. Just as for those who are champing at the bit to get your algorithms done, just be aware there are a couple of problems with that uh, that you'll need to overcome, especially with these weirdly shaped likelihood functions. Essentially, uh, the likelihood function for those statistical nerds who knows, know what that means, uh, when you have lots of uncentered data, your likelihood hill or the, the hill that looks like you, uh, that defines your likelihood function turns into a, like a massive boomerang, very narrow boomerang, which is very hard for most traditional algorithms to try and sample from. So you need to be pretty tricky in terms of trying to use uh, the, uh, traditional algorithms to get there. And so you often have to work on your own, but that's a topic for another day. I can see we're down to 14 attendees. Any last questions before we call it quits for today? Thank you very much, Rivetson. Much appreciated. Thank you for your, your feedback and uh, interaction too. When people like you interact with us, it makes it that much more exciting uh, at this end at least. So thank you for your input as well. Do I employ MATLAB, C or Python or do I do my own coding? Now, Nelson, I do MATLAB, but I'm not going to advocate for MATLAB over everything else. The reason why I use MATLAB is because for a lot of my, I do a lot of training as well, a lot of, a lot of interaction with the people trying to illustrate concepts. MATLAB is really, really good at uh, creating videos and animations of statistical stuff uh, in ways that Python, uh, for example, are, aren't. So that's the reason why I use MATLAB. But the reality is, all those other coding platforms you talked about there are just as capable. Um, so I use MATLAB for my own reasons. I'll advocate for it because I think it's very, very useful, but it, that's because I, I also want to get some really cool videos of, for example, the simulation happening. If you see those webinars we just talked about last year, you'll see some of these rotating surfaces and some of these data points and random walks and things like that. MATLAB is just so much better than anything else at creating those algorithms, sorry, those videos for these webinars and lessons. And that's why I use MATLAB. All the other, all the other um, platforms are really, really useful. All the other languages, languages I say, should say are just as useful in trying to solve the problem.
No worries. Thank you, Nelson, for your interaction as well. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if there's no more questions, I'll call it quits for there for today. Thank you for sticking through to the end. Um, hopefully you've got a lot out of today's lesson, uh, webinar. And the most important thing is the vital few. That makes everything's, everyone's life easy. <laughs> First, maybe the easiest thing you can do is speak to the guys and girls who take components out of your things that are failing too often. Ask them what's making their lives miserable and go from there. You can often uh, save yourself three months worth of analysis just by speaking to the people who are observing what's going on. But that's not to say data analysis is not useful. Hopefully you can see how powerful it can be. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, until our next webinar, have a splendid Tuesday.